Amen. Amen. Welcome to church. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Pastor Drew, and I am excited, as Pastor Max said, to be coming to you from the new building. Um, and so we, as we continue uh, to look ahead to the outdoor in-person services, uh, whenever that will be coming up, uh, we're excited to continue to take steps that direction. And also just want to say thank you to everyone who has filled out the survey um, that we sent out earlier this week. And we're going to send it out again, as Pastor Max said, uh, either tomorrow or Tuesday, just to make sure we get everybody's information and uh, the feedback, uh, the, the data, I guess, uh, has been really helpful. Uh, so we will be compiling that and be sharing that at the uh, members meeting uh, coming up. Uh, so we'll kind of be talking about next steps going forward. And also uh, one quick correction, the uh, Bible study that Pastor Matt leads on Wednesday actually starts next Wednesday. We got our wires crossed a little bit there uh, with communication. So um, just stay uh, ready for that. And it'll be next Wednesday night over Zoom. Uh, okay. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, and we're going to be diving into uh, this entire chapter. It's only 13 uh, verses, um, but the whole chapter 8. And I want to say before I get started, in the, the last six uh, to seven years of preaching, I can honestly say that uh, as I prepared for the preaching text, I have not wrestled. Uh, I've never wrestled as much as I have with this one. Uh, leaning in to this, these 13 verses is going to be uh, challenging uh, for us as a community, uh, challenging for us uh, to think about, and it's going to challenge for us to think about our personal rights, our community, uh, and the church, as well as ourselves differently. And I want us to, to sit with this text because it is so countercultural uh, to how the world works, but I think is an invitation from the Lord to really lean into who we are as the body of Christ. Let me read this, and then we will get uh, started. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not come, become a stumbling block to the weak. For as someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. 
so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. And we all say thanks be to God. God, we are thankful for the word. We're thankful that we stand or sit on Sunday mornings and have the Bible over us that we are submitting under it. We as your people recognize that we do not have uh, all the knowledge in our head. We need to be directed by your good and perfect word. And may you use the word through the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the word, to grow us up into people that look more and more like Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sins, convict us of our wrong thinking, and through the gentleness of the gospel, bring us to repentance where we have more life, more health, and more nourishment because of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are catching uh, this obviously in the middle of the book, uh, the letter to the Corinthian church. So we're looking at chapter 8 here, uh, and Paul, having dealt with a bunch of questions about marriage and singleness and all sorts of things that's causing division in the church, he is now addressing the next line of questions. And these line, this line of questions has to do with eat that has been sacrificed to idols. So I, want, I need to, to sit for a second and kind of absorb a little background to this, because obviously this is not something that we deal with on a day-to-day basis in the church in 2021. And though there's a lot to, gr- to glean from this, it's going to take a second to kind of, kind of put ourselves back 2,000 years ago into the cultural situation of the day. So what is going on here? What's what the problem that Paul is addressing here is that non-Christians, those that are not part of the faith, that are referred to as pagans uh, back in the day, uh, would they had a, a tra- traditions where they would worship these false gods. And so we put that in quotes, and Paul addresses that kind of in the beginning of chapter eight. And so these false gods or idols are not something we necessarily see a lot today, though we have many other types of idols, including money and people's approval and athletics or or looks. But back then, they literally worshipped idols. What you see on the screen is an example of one type of these false gods. And so William Barclay, an Old Testament scholar, he explains in some commentary on this passage that uh, what would happen is that when these folks who were worshiping these false gods, they would bring an animal sacrifice, such as a ram or a goat, and they would put it on the altar to this false god. The meat offered on pagan altars was usually divided into three portions. So that, you know, beautiful animal uh, was, was divided up into three portions. One portion was burnt in an honor of that particular god. The second portion was given to the worshiper to take home to eat. And the third portion was given to that false god's priest. So just like we have pastors and preachers uh, and priests in the church of Jesus Christ in these false, uh, you know, error-filled uh, worship uh, settings, they had priests as well. And so we're just going to take a second to name that the priest seem to always be getting some good meat to eat. And I want to take a quick shout out to our friends, Devanya and Rob. Whenever there is a church, uh, a party, uh, the, Rob will oftentimes bring out his grill, and Devanya would sneak meat uh, to Pastor Mac and uh, myself before the rest of you guys often even got to eat. And we would, you know, sheepishly say, not, you know, it's okay. And we then, you know, after a little bit of nudging, we would always enjoy that meat. Uh, so, 
to be clear, we're not down with the false gods, um, but I will say an amen to those priests and getting some meat to eat. So anyways, back to the text here. If the priest didn't want his portion, which, you know, to each their own there, he would then go on to sell it at the temple restaurant or at the meat market. Uh, And so the meat then served at the temple. So you've got the, the, you know, the ram that's and divide it up into three parts. One of the parts gets burned uh, as a worship to this idol god. The other part was taken home to eat. And the third part would oftentimes go to kind of the, the temple courts or a restaurant right around the temple. And so then, as well as now, people loved a good bargain. And this meat, if it had been sacrificed to an idol, was oftentimes cheaper than just your regular old meat market of the day. So Christians and non-Christians alike uh, in Corinth are buying meat from a vendor, a seller, and then taking it home to eat with their family and friends. So you have this situation where you have these public offerings of meals in which the meat from these animal sacrifices was being sold, but you also had instances of private sacrifices as well. The pagan false god worshiper would host a feast in honor of a god, sacrifice the animal, give some to the local priest, and then with the meat he would give a, a private banquet in his own home to these false gods. For instance, we have, you know, there'd be an invitation from a family to come have a meal in honor of, you know, Lord Serapas, that, that false god that I mentioned earlier. And they are dealing, so with the church in Corinth, they're dealing with a situation which seems extremely different and remote to us, but was intensely real to the Christians in Corinth. And it demanded a solution. It was a problem of whether or not to eat meat which had been offered to idols. The questions are the questions that are being raised is can the the can they eat meat purchased at the temple meat market? Okay, if those Christians, what if they were served meat purchased at the temple meat market when they were guests in someone's home? Are they supposed to not eat of that meat? And can a Christian at the restaurant eat at the restaurant by a pagan temple? If that if the answer is no to all these questions, then there's cost that that Christian would 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 have to that decision. First of all, they'd be cut off from some significant social occasions with non-Christians, even non-Christian leaders in the town. Second, it means that they would have to be paying for more. Ex- expensive meat because they wouldn't be able to get the discounted meat that's that's, uh, coming from the sacrifices by the temples. And the third thing is just the sheer pleasure. If they are being told not to eat that meat, being able to say, I'm going to forego this pleasure. So in essence, there are two groups of people that we are noticing here. Group A is, is members of the church, dividing up into two groups, members of the church who as Paul says in, 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 in chapter 8, we're stronger in their faith because they realize that false gods could not contaminate food. There's nothing about the food that would be, have anything wrong with it because there's nothing real about those gods. So they freely ate the meat publicly and privately in people's homes that had been sacrificed to idols. So that's group A on this side. And then you've got group B on the other side, and these were people who were offended by the eating of meat and refused to eat meat that had been sacrificed to false gods. 
Many had come to know Christ and had made the choice to leave their life of pagan idolatry. Uh, of, they were former worshipers of these false gods, so they couldn't understand why their fellow believers would want anything to do with that meat that had been sacrificed to the idols. So let's take a second to bring this forward a couple thousand years. In the year of our Lord, 2021, could you imagine this playing itself out now? I mean, I would love to believe that Christians in America in our present time would handle this same situation with humility and grace. But we all know humanity well enough to know that's probably not the case. I mean, you think about the grandstanding that would happen between these two groups looking down on each other. Someone in group A, I could see him posting on social media. I just saw Joshua over there eating meat that was sacrificed to a false idol. Can you believe it? Does he not worship the one God, Lord Jesus Christ? What church does he go to? I mean, that's group A. And then group B on the other side saying, I'm not going to mention names, but a sister whose name starts with J and rhymes with Penny is being a terrible steward of her money and not paying and paying full price for meat because she refuses to eat the meat at the market by the idol worshipers. Does she not understand that false gods are in fact just that false? And she is hurting the witness of the freedom of the gospel by refusing to eat this meat. We need to get that woman in a Bible study to move her maturity along. And what did we have here? We had a disagreement that had the potential for extreme divisiveness in the church. It's an argument that I could see getting very confusing for the church in Corinth on what actually is the right way to think about these meat, this, this meat that's been sacrificed to this, these idols. But I want to be clear here that there is a right answer of the, what the theological, uh, the, what is theologically correct. So we see in verse 4 so where Paul says, so, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and on earth, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul is looking at saying, like, there is nothing wrong theologically with eating this meat because it's false. these gods are, in fact, false. There's clearly a right theological viewpoint. This is not a gray area of Scripture. It is theologically correct. For the Christians in Corinth, should say in Corinth, to freely eat a food that has been sacrificed to false gods because that is what they are, false gods. So if that is the, what is theologically correct, then we would assume that Paul would naturally tell group A, the, the meat eaters, a group A, to tell them, yes, you know, hey guys, let's, let's, uh, this is theologically correct. You're, you know, it's theologically okay to eat that meat. So make sure to teach the less theologically mature Christians about the freedom they should have to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. But he doesn't actually say this. But maybe he would say, if I were him, I would say, let's send Peter or one of the apostles over to lead a seminar on this so you guys can all understand this. But he doesn't say this either. Or maybe Paul would shift and speak directly to group B and say, don't be ridiculous. Eat the meat. Here's two pages of theological points on why you do in fact have the freedom 
to eat that meat sacrificed to idols. But no, shockingly, he does none of this. Paul does not place the responsibility on those who are less theologically mature. No, the responsibility is on those who have a greater level of theological maturity to be patient, kind, and humble and lay down their rights for those who are not as theologically mature. In, those, in this case, those who do not understand the freedom to eat food sacrificed to false gods. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and 9, Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. The priority in this passage is not on what is theologically correct and making sure that's pounded into everyone. It's on how can we care for our weaker brother and sister. My older brother, Jason, is two years older than I am. And growing up, he's also, also was two years older. That's how that works. But we were competitive about everything. We were five and seven, six and eight, uh, seven and nine. It, we were competitive about who could get the best seat in the minivan. Uh, we were, you know, every sport, basketball, golf, tennis, football, we were wrestling with, with each other almost every single day. Who could, you know, beat each other a worse in video games? Who could spin a quarter the longest? If you could compete over it, we were competing over it growing up. Well, him being two years older, he was better at just about everything. He still is, even though we're both grown men now, um, but especially growing up. I and mean, when I was six and he was eight. He was two years bigger. He was more athletic. He had better hand-eye coordination. He was smarter than I was. And thinking back, when we would get competitive and it would, you know, voices would get raised and we would get in it with each, into it with each other, thinking back, what do you think my mom would say to him when we were playing together? What would she say to the eight-year-old playing to the six-year-old? Would she say to him, Jason, which is my brother's name, Jason, have no mercy on your little brother. Step on his throat. Show him how awesome you are. No, my loving, caring mom would look at my older brother and say, remember, he's younger. He's not as strong. He's not as big. Your job is to, yes, have fun with him, but take care of him and encourage him. Jason was told that because he was bigger, he had a responsibility to care for his weaker, younger brother. This is what Paul was saying. As important as knowledge is, it does not supersede the call to compassionately love your brothers and sisters. N.T. Wright says, the love and concern for other members of the community should be placed ahead of all attempts, all attempts at personal self-realization. And just to be clear here, this doesn't mean that we never speak the truth. There are a number of times in the scripture where we see the, the authors of the letters to the churches, and especially with Paul, we see him in Ephesians 4.14 where he says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. 
For him, the whole body joined and held together by a supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each does its part. So yes, we are called at times to speak the truth. That's the most loving thing we can do for our brothers and sisters. But we are never, let me be clear on this, never called to speak the truth absent of love. Because when we speak the truth absent of love, that is what Paul is talking about in the beginning when he says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Brothers and sisters, there are times when we as Christians, out of love, are called to lay down our knowledge, our freedoms, and our personal rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And ultimately for the sake of the unity and the health of the church. And I get it. This is unbelievably hard. We think about this passage and group A, the ones that are theologically mature enough to eat the meat that's been sacrificed to these false gods, for them to lay down that right, it not only was a personal preference they laid down, it cost them socially. There were parties they would not be invited to, or it was made, a, made potentially a strain between them and some non-believers. It cost them financially. Instead of being able to eat meat that had been sacrificed to the idols for a discounted price, they had to go to the regular meat market and pay full price. And it cost them just the sheer pleasure of eating that meat that was at the market. So when we see this, we see that laying down our rights costs us socially, financially, and with just sheer pleasure. But it's what we are called to for the sake of others. And this is hard because especially in America where we are practicing our Christianity, almost everything is, seems like it's built around my rights and standing up for my rights. But as a Christian, this is just another way that our calling goes against the grain of culture when we are called to lay down those rights for the sake of others. What we see in this passage is that love for our brothers and sisters is greater than knowledge. Verse 2. Love is greater than winning the argument. Love is greater than even the freedoms that we have and being willing to lay those down. And love is greater than our personal rights. One clear example of this is in regards to alcohol and the drinking of alcohol. While many Christians do not drink alcohol and feel that it's wrong to do so, the fact is that the scripture never teaches us that we shouldn't drink alcohol. Alcohol was a regular part of the culture in which Jesus lived, and we never hear him teaching or even practicing the abstinence from alcohol. In fact, his first miracle was to transform water into wine to help to rescue a family from embarrassment at their wedding. And though, and however, Scripture does teach us that we are not to get drunk on wine, Ephesians 5.18, based solely on Scripture without taking anyone else into consideration, it's a very easy, logical argument that drinking alcohol in moderation is perfectly fine. So why should we ever think otherwise? Well, there's some Christians in their line of thinking that they feel like not drinking alcohol is a way that they can be above reproach. They say because it's good for a Christian to live a life of morality, that their faith and more importantly, the goodness of God, they want to live in a way where the goodness of God is not called into question, so they don't drink alcohol at all. 
Another line of argument against drinking is the consideration for those brothers and sisters in the faith who have had addiction issues in their past and caring for them. This is one of the reasons we at Redeemer, when we go on retreats, alcohol is never part of the retreat. When we have communion, we use grape juice instead of wine because we don't want to trip anyone up who used to have an alcohol addiction or is still presently battling that. And we want to love and care for all the brothers and sisters that God has called us to be the church alongside. So the mature Christian in this example knows that he or she has the freedom to drink alcohol, but knows that there are certain times where they will lay down that, that freedom, that personal right, that knowledge for the sake of caring for their other brothers and sisters. And it might cost them pleasure, it might cost them socially, but they know that the love for their brothers and sisters outweighs what it would cost them. So when we find ourselves with a disagreement within the body of believers in real life or over social media, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Am I correcting this person for their benefit or to make myself feel better? Am I correcting this person to build them up or to build myself and probably more accurately my ego up? Am I being called to lay down in this moment my personal rights for the sake of my Christian brother or sister? Will correcting this person lead to greater unity in the church? Or am I simply seeking correction to make myself feel holier or to feel better about who I am. Love and knowledge, brothers and sisters, must go together. That Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. It's been said that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Knowledge is power and it must be used in love. The strong believers in the Corinthian church had knowledge, but they weren't using their knowledge to love their brothers and sisters. Instead of building up the weaker saints, they were puffing themselves up. Paul's desire was for the stronger saints to help the weaker saints grow. And by asking the stronger saints to lay down their rights, they were strengthening. They had the opportunity to actually strengthen their relationship with the other Christians through a united and healthy church. Instead of dividing over this issue of meat, they laid down their rights, came alongside, then had the opportunity then to build build relationships in unity and grow each other up in maturity in the faith. By choosing love over winning the argument, they were in fact living out the gospel. So I don't know exactly what this looks like in your personal life, but I know that there are opportunities to apply this text. I know there are arguments that you are feeling led to that are ultimately to make you feel better, because I know I do the same thing, ultimately to make us feel more vindicated or us feel puffed up, as Paul would say. But is it coming at the expense of our brother and sister and ultimately at the expense of the health of the church? So may we this week remember Throughout the scripture, God's deep, deep love for us, and may that lead us to love each other. I'll close with Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you would allow this chapter from 1 Corinthians 8 to sink in to our hearts, to help us see the areas of our lives where we are being led to being puffed up instead of loving our brothers and sisters well. Give us opportunities to lay down our rights and our freedoms and our knowledge in order to care for our weaker brothers and sisters. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.